picture the scene. You're in the Maldives having a no-news, no-shoes holiday. It's funded by your UK property portfolio that took you years to put together. Perhaps the next week you'll spend a few days meandering around North Yorkshire while visiting one of your kids at their university of choice. But how do you get to this magical point in your life? This episode will help you on your way. You're listening to Expat Property Story, a podcast in which I share my story to smooth the way for you to have your own Expat Property Story. Hello there. Welcome to episode 107 of Expat Property Story, a podcast for expats and remote investors interested in UK property. This week, I thought it might be helpful to give a seven-step guide to getting started as an expat UK property investor for those new to the show or as a handy revision exercise for the rest of us. Some of today's content is based on my own experience of building a £3 million property portfolio from Hong Kong, and some of it from the insights provided by the amazing guests on this podcast. The seven steps are 1. Building your knowledge 2. Working out your future plans three. Funding. Four, choosing a location. Five, choosing who to work with and who to trust. Six, building a network. And seven, taking action. But before we begin, I want to tell you about all the good stuff you'll get when you join our mailing list. Firstly, following our two part special on due diligence in episodes 104 and 105, you'll get access to the 37-odd questions you need to be asking someone you're thinking of investing in or with. And if you're on the other side of the coin and you're looking for private investment in your property business, then you should be able to answer these questions too. Because ultimately, when people invest in your business, they're looking for a safe pair of hands to look after their money. So that's the first giveaway. The second freebie is our 23-step guide to buying property at auction which I put together after buying three properties from auction catalogues last year and after analysing hundreds of deals. And the third reason to be cheerful about joining our mailing list is that you will receive our monthly newsletter, which is jam-packed with essential news for UK property investors and should arrive in your inbox at the beginning of each month, which coincidentally is the time when our meetups take place. As a quick reminder, if you're in Singapore and Hong Kong, you can meet other property people on the first Saturday of each month. And if you're in Dubai, it's the first Wednesday of each month. Details of the venues and times are in the show notes. So here is my seven-step guide to getting started as a UK expat property investor. One, knowledge. As I was writing this, I thought about putting education but instead opted for knowledge, which got me thinking about what the difference is. So I went to Uncle Google and discovered a wonderful website called differencebetween.net, which says that knowledge is gained from life experiences and age, while education is learned from books and may never be actually experienced. If I think about how I learned about property, I would say that much like a standard loan-to-value mortgage ratio, 75% came from just getting on with it, and by learning from doing, and the remaining 25% came from education, and most of that was self-education, certainly up to the point where we'd assembled a portfolio of five student HMOs, at which point I started paying for some highly focused and community-based experience and accountability, rather than a program glossing over all the different strategies and business models 
with a smattering of one-to-one mentorship thrown in. As I've said many times on here, my own education was via podcasts, books, and forums. And if you're completely new to property, the Property Podcast is a great place to start, as is Richard Brown's Property Voice Podcast, and to get a glimpse into how other people have built their portfolios, the Inside Property Investing Podcast. Those three podcasts, along with Property Tribes, got me started, and I learned the rest from taking action, which we'll come back to later. Two, future plans. You can put your foot on the second of these seven steps on the stairway to seven while you're still on step one. Step two is to think about your future plans, your goals, your objectives, your purpose, your why. Call it what you like, but this arguably needs more thought for us expats than for most property people, because we have one more variable than our UK-based counterparts, and it is currency. Where do you intend to end up in your later years? If you're tempted by Thailand or you fancy the Philippines, then your retirement income will be exposed to the risk of currency fluctuations. And if you are intending to return to the UK, will you be a salaried employee? If so, then you will probably, though not necessarily, want to buy through a limited company. If you buy properties in your individual name while living abroad, it may well be to your advantage as long as you're abroad. But if you subsequently return to the UK as a paid employee, then you won't benefit from the mortgage relief in the same way that you would if you had bought through a limited company. On the other hand, if, like me, you're planning to return to the UK with no intention of working for others, then you might want to consider buying some property in your own name rather than through a company, since you won't be paying income tax on a salary. But you'll need to leave a buffer to allow for rental increases to make sure that your income doesn't tip over into the higher tax bracket. In our case, we have room to buy more property individually at a later date, which is an option worth thinking about. Because remember that when you buy within a company, you're effectively taxed twice if you want to access that cash, once via corporation tax and then a second time through income tax. But even here, it's not as clear-cut as we would all like, as inheritance tax implications are different for both paths. One advantage of going down the limited company route is that a family trust could be set up as a shareholder in the business. In this way, you have the flexibility to pass on the value to the next generation without passing on the current income. Whereas, if you hold property in your personal name, you can't pass on the value of the properties for inheritance tax purposes without also giving away some of the income. Well, that's all right, I hear you say. I'll gift my kids the property in the future so that they can receive an income while at university or for other reasons. But this could trigger capital gains tax and stamp duty land tax. So it's kind of six of one tax and half a dozen of another. Although, as a final factor to consider, if, like us, you financed your company with your own funds in the form of director's loans, then you can withdraw those funds tax-free since they had already been taxed when you lent them to the company in the first place. So there's no right way or wrong way, just the way that works for you in your circumstances. And we all know circumstances change. So perhaps the best advice is to think about it, talk about it with your loved ones, and then take the best action you can think of based on the information you have to hand, rather than allow your savings to sit in the bank getting swallowed up by inflation. If you do decide to go down the incorporation route, you will need to set up a limited company. And if you're investing to hold for the long term, then the SIC code you will need will be 68209. 
Whereas if you're intending to flip, then it's 68100. And if you're planning to do both, then you'd be well advised to set up different companies for each one. Now, none of the information I've gone through today should be taken as advice. You should definitely talk to a tax advisor about all of this. But even before that, you should probably learn as much about it on your own first so that you're not blinded by all the different options and language, etc., etc. And a good place to start is our mini season on tax in episodes 23 to 29. Once you've made a decision on where you think you'll spend your later days, the next thing to think about is how much money you think you're going to need. So you might want to sit down and write down all your costs, which could include health insurance, transport, utility bills, perhaps a mortgage on your family home, university expenses for your kids, holidays, food, clothes, going out, gifts, and anything else you think you might need. And before you go crazy, it's worth mentioning that research has shown that there's a limit to how much money can buy happiness, and it's surprisingly modest. The impact of money on satisfaction apparently levels off at an annual income of around £60,000. My wife and I recently came across a documentary on YouTube about a billionaire from Azerbaijan who had a huge mansion with a luxurious indoor swimming pool that he'd never even used. He had all the money in the world and then some, but he didn't look very happy to us. But hey, we're getting off track. The point is, you work out how much money you want and then work backwards. Once you've worked out your goals, some people think you should decide on your location. But I actually think that at this point, you might want to consider how you're going to fund your portfolio. A fair few expats actually see it as less risky and less hassle to buy with cash. Although it has been suggested on this podcast that depending on your risk appetite, buying with cash gives you less control over your cash flow and arguably more risk. So let's assume that you're going down the leveraged route. You will need a deposit, of course, and probably at least 25%. And if your expat savings are not enough to get you started, you could do what we did and pull out some of the equity from our UK property to get going. At the end of our monthly newsletter, I always ask you to message me with the one thing you're struggling with in your property story, and getting an expat mortgage is one of the most common answers I get. While you have fewer than four properties, you will not be considered a portfolio landlord and can therefore deal directly with high street expat specialists such as HSBC Jersey or Skipton International and benefit from cheaper interest rates. But these lenders can be slow to respond, so if you're in a hurry, or your situation is complicated, and let's face it, whose situation isn't complicated in one way or another, then it may be quicker and easier to go to a specialist expat mortgage broker. Paying £500 for a good broker will save you time and money further down the line. So what are some of the things lenders don't like? One of the most significant factors is where you're based. Many lenders will not lend to you if you fall below a certain rank on the delightfully named Perceived Corruption Index, link in the show notes, and the latest version, based on 2022 data, sees 178 countries in various places between Denmark and Somalia. No prizes for guessing which of these two countries sits at the top and which at the bottom. So where you're based affects lending, as does who you work for. Lenders prefer global multinational corporations. So if you work for a startup in South Sudan, you may have to go down the unencumbered cash-only route, especially if you married a local and your spouse is a 50% shareholder in a limited company set up so recently it has no CT600, otherwise known 
as your company tax return. And if you think you can just waltz straight into an HMO as your first portfolio purchase, you'll probably find that lenders will want evidence of having run a buy-to-let or two first. Oh, and before you leave the UK, make sure to look after your digital footprint by remaining on the electoral roll, maintaining a UK bank account and having two proofs of a UK address. All these factors and more are addressed in our two-part special on expat mortgages featuring friend of the pod Simon Allen back in episodes 15 and 16. 4. Location So you've worked out your goals, you've spoken to an expat mortgage broker, you know how much you can borrow. Now you need to work out where to invest. One theme to emerge from guests so far is the benefits of choosing an area where you have boots on the ground. This could be friends and family, but in our case, all our friends and family were based in the south of England, where yields were not as lucrative, and because of our age and the goals we'd identified, i.e. replacing our income in a relatively short space of time, we needed cash flow, not capital growth. So, we opted not to invest where we had friends or family. If you have a blank canvas, you'll probably want to make sure that the fundamental elements of population, employment and infrastructure are in place. Episode 89's Adam Lawrence proposed looking in areas with expected population increases, which would not only mean that you'd be minimising your voids, but should also lead to good capital growth. For research on employment, you can take advantage of resources such as the Office for National Statistics. And although it's a paid-for subscription, property data is also a good one because it gives you information on the demographic of a specific postcode. The final piece of the jigsaw is infrastructure. If there are lots of people and lots of jobs, all those people are going to need to get around. So good transport links are also important. So if the population is set to increase and there are good employment prospects and perhaps regeneration projects in the pipeline, then you won't go too far wrong over the long term. And here's a handy tip. In 2019, as part of their Leveling Up initiative, the government announced it would be providing funding to increase economic growth in 100 towns. I guess they couldn't decide between the last two locations, so they ended up picking 101 towns. Anyway, I would suggest making sure that the town you're considering is on that list. As ever, I'll put a link to the Town Fund Prospectus in the show notes. We'll be back with the podcast in a second, but I just wanted to let you know that we help high net worth individuals who perhaps don't have the time, expertise or contacts to find deals that stack right now. We can offer fixed rate returns of up to 12%. So instead of watching your savings get swallowed by inflation, why not schedule a free call via the link in the show notes to see how we might work together. Now back to the pod. Five, choosing who to work with and who to trust. Back to Adam from episode 89 for this one, and he suggested that there are two paths to follow at this stage. One, where you do everything yourself from abroad, so you decide on your area, research it, speak to letting agents, do all the viewings using Viewer or friends and family, negotiate with owners or estate agents, find a project manager if you're doing a project, and then find someone to manage the property for you. Some people even do this last part themselves, but that's a tiny minority. So let's leave that to one side. Now, if you're a time-poor expat like me with a full-time job and a family, then you probably won't be able to take that path. 
So you're going to need to find someone to help you. And here's where you need to be careful and not fall into the trap of buying an off-plan new build from a dodgy developer at an overinflated price with unrealistic rent guarantees that you may end up having to sell at a loss. And even if none of that happens, all the profit goes to the agent selling you the deal rather than you. So, more than ever, buyer beware. My own tip is to go looking for someone to work with rather than be approached yourself. And here is where trust comes into it. Your job as an expat UK property investor is to research everyone you're thinking of working with. Find them via your network. Look for them on podcasts. Ask about them on forums. Talk to them. Ask them about a situation with other investors where things didn't work out that well. Contact those investors. Ask for three or more references and call them all. Even if they've been handpicked by your potential property partner, you'll still learn things. See if what they say matches what you find out about them on Company's House. Do I need to point you in the direction of episodes 104 and 105 on how to carry out due diligence on people and companies on Company's House? Or encourage you to join our mailing list via the show notes to access our PDF on 37 due diligence questions to ask? No? Okay. And here's some more gold I picked up from guests. Once you've picked someone, start small and ideally pick more than one person and let them both know about the other. Test your potential property partners out and see if they do what they say they'll do before trusting them further. And if that doesn't work out, at least you'll have your second choice to fall back on. Six, build your network. As I said, a good place to start your due diligence is through your network. Even as an expat, networks are everywhere. Forums, Facebook groups, WhatsApp communities, meetups. If you can't find a community where you are, start your own. A few years ago, I turned up to a local property meetup in Hong Kong to find only a handful of other investors. One of them went on to invest a six-figure sum in our business. You never know who you'll meet until you try. As I said, earlier this year, we started a Hong Kong monthly meetup and listeners in Dubai and Singapore have also started their own gatherings. Next, we started a WhatsApp group so that people can tap into the knowledge and experiences of others. But I've recently received a few emails from expats in remote areas where there may not be other UK investors or none that they know about anyway. So I thought it might be helpful to open up our WhatsApp group to other expats. So if you want to join the group, then sign up for our mailing list either by following the link in the show notes or by heading to www.expatpropertystory.com. And while we're on network, and because I want to keep the list to seven so that I can use my cheesy stairway to seven line, I'm going to include your power team within this step. And while we're on power team, I recently read a post on the expat tribe on property tribes, for which we are the proud sponsor, by the way. And it was from someone just starting out asking for guidance. They used the term power team. Someone else replied, saying that if you use the expression power team, then you're not ready to invest. Now, I admit that there are some property cliches that I'm not particularly fond of. And in fact, there's one very well-known one that I have religiously refused to use in all 107 episodes so far. And if you email me, I'll tell you what it is. But I wouldn't withhold advice on that basis. So at the risk of offending Mr. Ready to Invest on Property Tribes, I would include your power team as part of your network. Like all good teams, it can evolve as your portfolio expands. It took me a fair while to find a good solicitor, for example. But you don't need a Champions League goalkeeper while you're still in the conference, right? 
I would start with a mortgage broker or a tax advisor, and probably one with expat knowledge. The wonderfully wise Helen Godbold-Ead from episode 7, however, puts forward a solid argument for starting with a good letting agent who can advise on what to buy and on what street, so that you simply reverse engineer the whole process. And then, as your relationship develops, they may even be able to give you inside knowledge on off-market deals from their other clients. And they will also have contact with local builders, and maybe project managers. Other members of your team going forward will definitely be an accountant, and as your story gets more advanced, you may need planners, architects, website designers, the list goes on. 7. Taking Action My favourite quote from all 107 episodes of this podcast comes from Rod Turner in episode 42, and is just four words long. Don't talk, just do. Now, I know that's a lot of information to take in, so for the highlight section this week, perhaps it might be an idea to put it all into context and give a brief summary of how my wife and I got started as expat UK property investors with reference to the seven steps. One, building your knowledge. I devoured podcasts, books and forums, attended meetups and wrote emails to guests on podcasts to pick their brains and also reached out to the person in my neighbourhood who was ahead of me in their story. But most of my learning came through the experience of buying property and learning what I needed to learn to complete each purchase and go again. 2. Working out your future plans While building my knowledge, my wife and I talked about our goals and purpose and then we worked out how much money we would need down to the last penny and then started thinking about how we were going to do this. The last part constantly changes, by the way, as our story moves from chapter to chapter. We eventually arrived at a buy, refurbish, refinance strategy, turning a three-bed semi into a five-bed student HMO. 3. Funding For this model, we needed a significant sum of cash. So we released equity from our original London flat and cashed in a fair chunk of the pension fund set up by our supposedly independent financial advisor. We bought our first student HMO with cash in my individual name with a deed of trust set up to divide the benefits of the property 50-50 between my wife and I. We then refinanced the property, set up a limited company and expanded the portfolio from there. 4. Choosing a location We decided on Nottingham because it seemed to be the best place for a student HMO with affordable prices and two massive universities. 5. Choosing who to work with and who to trust we did some research on who to work with through listening to podcasts and carried out some reputational due diligence on our targeted property partner with the podcast host, who told us that he was good, but perhaps not as good as someone else he recommended. And this person is someone we still work closely with today. 6. Building a network My network was possibly an area of weakness up until the point where we'd assembled our portfolio of five student HMOs. So, I started this podcast. And like tree roots in a forest, our network continues to grow. 7. Taking action Arguably, the most important thing we did was take action. We didn't wait till everything was perfect. We made and continue to make lots of mistakes, fewer as time goes by hopefully, but we find solutions, adjust our aim and shoot again. We earn or we learn. 
This week's exotic listener location is St. Peter Port in Guernsey. And because I haven't been there yet and know next to nothing about it, I decided to do a brief bit of research on the island and found out that 8,000 years ago, it was attached to France. Its other claim to fame is that the world's first underwater arrest took place there when a resident was caught illegally harvesting shellfish and was arrested by a scuba diving police officer. Every day's a school day here, so if you're our listener from St. Peter Port in Guernsey, why not scroll down the show notes to where it says join our mailing list so that you can access our monthly newsletter, our 23-step guide to buying property at auction, and our PDF containing 37 questions to ask someone you're thinking of investing in or with. And if you know an expat or remote investor or anyone else who you think might benefit from the free, no-strings-attached content provided by this podcast, then share the show to spread the word. You've been listening to Expat Property Story. Story.